an honor for me to have my prayer partner of about 18, 19 years here, Ward. You've heard me mention him at times. You guys are the beneficiaries of his prayer. This man has prayed for me every day for like 18 or 19 years. And so, uh, you know, if I have remained partially sane at times, God has been answering this guy's prayer over protection and, um, and living out what he wants for us. And so it's great to have you here, Ward. Uh, yes. Um, just want to let you know what we're doing this summer for our summer series of messages. The title of our series is Songs of the Heart, Expressing Our Emotions to God. God created us as emotional beings. And we're going to be going through some of the Psalms this summer and at the various emotions that are expressed in Scripture that are uh, Psalms, their songs, their lyrics, their prayers that we can use to express emotion to God. And I think you're going to be surprised at some of the stuff that's in the Psalms. Um, what do you do with anger? The Psalms can teach us about that. What do you do when you're down or despondent? How do you express yourself when you're just bursting with joy? And so I trust that you'll uh, uh, be around for as much of these as you can and that God will... Um, grow us and help us as we express ourselves to him. I was, uh, I was looking at some statistics recently, and um, it's about three-quarters of Canadians believe in God. Uh, now, while church attendance has been kind of declining over the last 40 or 50 years, um, and, and whereas a growing number of people are identifying themselves as... Uh, no religion, the vast majority of people believe that God exists, that there is a God in this world. And I am thinking about that because if you believe that God exists, then I think you also need to have the sense that there's an accountability to this God. And uh, if there's an accountability that in some way we need to submit to his authority or follow him, and, and that this God we need to understand what he wants of us and how to be on the right side of God. After all, if he's created us, if he's laid out rules for us, and if he will judge us, it behooves us to know what is it that he wants of us. How, do we, how are we acceptable to him? What does he require um, if we're going to avoid and be spared condemnation and eternal judgment. I mean, it just comes out of that. And so when I think of what God wants, probably for most of us, it's pretty self-evident what God wants. God wants us to follow him and be good, right? Any argument there? That's what God wants of us. You know, I think of being a child, and your conception as a child... Um, God wants you to be good, a good boy, a good little girl. Um, that's, we have that understanding. What, what is it that he means by that? Well, we, we just know. It's kind of funny. I was, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking of a song that was playing in like the, um, the 1960s. 
Um, and the song is called Last Kiss. And uh, so I, I'm, not, I'm not feeling a lot of resonance there with this. But, 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 but you may catch on to it. So this, it's kind of a cheesy song. Um, and it was a song about a guy who borrows his dad's car and he goes for a drive and takes his girlfriend. And there's some car, it's raining out, it's dark, and there's a car that is uh, stalled. And he swerves to miss this car and crashes the vehicle. Crash, bang. And he and his girlfriend are, are both uh, out of it for a while. And he comes too. And there are people all around the car. And he, he, he goes to his girlfriend and, and he, he takes her in his arms and she comes too for a moment. And she says, just hold me. And he kisses her and she dies. And here is the chorus in this song. And, and I, I still remember this, this chorus over all these years. He sings, Oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I've got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. Now, how many know that song? Aha! You guys are old. <laughs> so I was just... A, just a little, little child when I heard that song. Uh, but I thought it's so interesting to think. Here is, you know, a popular song. And the conception is that there is a God. And he's taken my girlfriend. And if I want to see her again, I got to be good. Because God likes good people and it's good people that go to heaven. It's, it's in that sense of goodness that we need to have. When you think about it, um, it's kind of supported in the Bible, isn't it? I mean, we have the Ten Commandments. And we know that God has laid out Ten Commandments and that we should follow the commandments. I mean, doesn't the Bible say, after all, by their fruit you should know them. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. And, and so we look at people and say, hmm, bad tree, bad fruit. Uh, the Apostle Paul would say in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, he would say this, um, uh, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Got to be good if God is going to accept you. In the very last book of the Bible, the, the, the book of the Revelation in chapter 21, we see this. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I mean, it seems pretty clear that if you want to be on the right side of God... You've got to live the kind of right life. You've got to be a good boy or a good girl or a good adult. And uh, in case there's any misunderstanding or confusion about this, Jesus wants us to really understand what God wants and uh, understand who's accepted with him and who's not, who's in and who's out with him. And so he uses 
the example of two contrasting people to help us understand this. Two people who couldn't be more different. Two people who are like polar extremes. Uh, These two people come to the temple to pray. And in Luke 18 and verse 10, we read this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Uh, the, The contrast couldn't be more stark. One is a good guy. I'm gonna tell you who it is. It's the Pharisee. The Pharisee is like... He's like on the God squad. He's like the, one of the most religious people going. He, he, he's a good guy. He's a religious guy. He goes to church all the time. He knows his Bible backward and forward. He lives by the rules. He's a moral person. He's a good person. And um, in fact, we see his goodness in, in a couple of ways. In, uh, in verses 11 and 12, uh, we read this. The stair, the, so they've both gone, to, they've both gone to, a, to the temple, to the place of worship, to the place to pray. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give all, a tenth of all I get. He's a good guy. He's a guy who lives out his faith. He's, he's not a robber. He doesn't rip people off. He doesn't take from people. He's very concerned about, about maintaining that. He's not an evildoer. He's not an unjust. He's not a guy who's going around hurting people and doing wrong. He's not an adulterer. He's, he believes in marital and sexual fidelity, and he lives according to God's rules in that way. That's, that's what he doesn't do. He's known by what he doesn't do. He doesn't do the wrong things, but he does the good things that God has asked him to do. First, he prays. That's what he's doing here. He came to the temple to pray, and he's praying. Um, and, and secondly, he, he's known by what he does. He fasts. Now, in the, in the uh, Jewish faith, there's one day in the year that you have to fast. It's a mandatory fast, and that's Yom Kippur, Uh, the Day of Atonement. Um, And and this guy, he fasts. And and to fast is to cease eating, uh, and in some cases drinking, for a time to pursue God in prayer, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to, to follow God, to seek God's face and His will. And, and so... They had to do that once a year. That's nothing to him because he fasts two times a week. Two times a week he fasts. He is so serious about his faith. He does like a hundred times more than what the law really called for. Not only that, he's a giver. He tithes of all he gets. You know, sometimes I have people say to me, you know, a tithe in the Old Testament, they, they had to give God a tenth. Of, of uh, their, their income, their produce. Um, and it's interesting because sometimes I talk to people and they'll say, well, if, if I were to tithe, should I tithe from the, uh, the gross or the net? What should I, you know, and try to figure out, how, you know, how do, how do I give, you know? Um, this guy, he tithes of everything he, he has. We, we looked uh, before, you, you know, uh, we have outside of our back door, we've got a little box with herbs in it. And this guy is so concerned about giving God a tenth of everything that he takes the basil leaves and counts out nine and the tenth he gives to God. I mean, this guy is, 
he is, he is just going to do whatever he can to follow God down to the nth degree. Well, the third thing, he's known by what he doesn't do and by what he does do, but he's also known as he compares himself with others. And um, here he is, this other guy goes to the temple. The guy's a, a tax collector. He goes to the temple, and he looks at this other guy, and, and when you know about tax collectors, you realize that they're, like, they're the bottom of the barrel in the Jewish society. This isn't like, this isn't like CRA. Uh, this is like kind of corrupt, and, and, and so he looks by comparison at others. He's good. He's a good person. Um, now, Jesus, as he tells the story, sets alongside him this other guy who's the tax collector. Now, as I said, the tax collectors, it's, it's not like a noble, a noble uh, employment to, have, to be a tax collector because um, the Jews were under foreign occupation by the Roman government, Roman soldiers, Roman governor. They were run by the Romans, and the Romans were really good at collecting taxes. But here's what they would do. They would get Jews to collect taxes from their fellow countrymen, and they, could, they would actually have to buy um, and, and bid on the job to get the job that they could collect taxes. Now, how they made their money back was they would collect what the Romans needed and they would take more and they would get rich. And some of them got filthy rich out of taking from their people. Now, that's about as low as you could get uh, for them. Uh, they, they would overcharge, they would make money, and they were absolutely despised. They were so despised, in fact, that they had their own category. They're sinners and tax collectors, uh, you know? So it's like the, the worst of the worst. Um, there were some of the slimiest people. If we're trying to put this in today's context, I don't know, everybody's a little bit different, but what would you think is the worst of the worst in terms of sinners? Well, some of us would, you know, may say pedophiles are those who hurt or abuse children, those who, who traffic in human slaves, uh, people who, who bilk others out of their, in, their money, all of their, uh, their money for retirement. They, they got them into some Ponzi steam, scheme and took everything, left them destitute. I, I don't know what it is, uh, gang members who hurt others. I don't know what's the worst of the worst to you, but, but whatever it is, if you think what that is, that's what this guy is. I mean, what's he doing even praying? What's he doing at the temple anyway? And, and here he is, this lowest of the low, this disgusting person. And um, we read about him in Luke 18, 13. Um, the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Which one of these guys is God going to accept? It's a no-brainer. It's the good guy, the religious guy, the guy who lives by the rules. Which guy is going to get into heaven? Which guy would, would God choose? Well, certainly it would be that. I mean, if this is the final exam, if, if this is what we've had, hands down, I mean, it would be foolish to think otherwise. Of course, the good guy, the religious guy, uh, everyone who has any sense of justice and right would, would acknowledge that he's the winner. 
So God is going to, so Jesus now is going to weigh in on this discussion because Jesus started the whole thing. He said there were two guys that went. Uh, we got the good guy and the bad guy. Whom will God accept? And in verse 14, we read this. I tell you that this man, the sleazy guy, the tax collector, this man rather than the other man went home justified before God. I, 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 don't, I don't know that I'm getting this because this is not making sense. The guy who lives by the rules, who loves God, who does everything, comes and prays. God says, I don't accept him. And here's the sleazy guy, the worst of the worst. And God says, he goes home, accepted with me. Do you have a problem with that? Uh, Do you struggle with that? God accepted the terrible, sinful guy. This is scandalous. It's scandalous. How can this be? How can God give thumbs up to the pedophile? To the Ponzi schemer, uh, to the person, to the to the to the guy who's who's in a gang, who's who's killing people. How can God give a thumbs up to that person and to the good guy who's doing everything, turn him away? How can he look on him in that way? Well, Jesus will help us understand what he's trying to say here because he tells this story to people who were confident in their own righteousness, people who relied on their own goodness, people who believed it to be sufficient uh, what their, how they lived their life, to bring God on side with them, and they looked down on others who, di- who, who uh, uh, and regarded them with contempt that weren't as good as they were. So in, in chapter 18 and verse 9, at the start of this whole story, Jesus says this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. They were confident in their ability. And they looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He had a point in telling this parable. He he shocks us with the answer because it seems to go against everything that makes sense to us. He says this, to those who were confident in their own goodness, their own righteousness, and they looked down on everybody else. Jesus sees something that we may not see. So I want to go through their prayer again, and let's understand what Jesus sees, what God hears when he hears this. So in verses 11 and 12, we read this. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I have. First thing he does is he commends himself to God. He says to God, you know what? You're pretty lucky to have me. You must be blessed that I follow you and I'm going to pray to you about myself. Five times, I, me, my, I, 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 I. He's proud of what he has. I thank you that I'm not like other people. You know, if you want to base your goodness on comparing with other people, you always be able to find somebody who's worse than you are. If you want to feel good about yourself, don't we do that? 
It don't, you know, I, I, even, in, even in marriage sometime, if Gerda says to me, you know, you did da 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 you didn't do da you know, I'll go, oh yeah, well, you didn't do da 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 and, and, you know, if you want to feel good about yourself, would you compare, right? And he's comparing. I, I, I'm so thankful that I'm a great person and I'm not like this scuzzy guy who's, who's just a terrible person. I don't do these things and I do these things. And God, you are so lucky to have me. He was smug. He looked at this despicable piece of trash, this, this um, tax collector, and congratulated himself on his uh, incredible performance before God. He didn't need God, frankly. He had everything under control. His efforts in spirituality and his goodness were what he believed to be sufficient to earn his way to God. He was patting himself on the back. Good boy, boy, you are something else. By contrast, the tax collector in verse 13, he stood at a distance. He said, I've, I've got no business being here. This is a place of worship. My life is a mess. Uh, I, I, I don't even feel like I can push forward to where, where all the prayers are. I, I, I stood back. Uh, I didn't feel that that was my place. Uh, he didn't feel right for being in the place of, of, of God. He stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his chest in, in, in self-loathing. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God. He didn't feel right about being there. He feels unworthy. He refuses to look to heaven. He is so ashamed. He's so filled with shame and contempt for himself. He can't look up in pride to God. All he can do is hang his head. He knows that he has no hope in and of himself. He knows that he's done for. He feels he has no business being there. And all he can do is express his brokenness, sobbing and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have no place being here. You see, he understands something that the religious guy never really understood. That we're all horribly helpless and hopeless before God. That we can never work to earn our way to God, into God's acceptance. That our religious pride... And and self-righteousness are an affront to God. The God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And instead of finding someone whom we can feel inferior to, he needs to understand that he's standing in the presence of absolutely hot white purity before God. Isaiah, the prophet, the the, the greatest of the writing prophets in the Old Testament, uh, spoke and he, God granted him a vision of his holiness in the temple. And before this experience, uh, Isaiah is saying, you know what, Uh, God, these people of yours, woe to them for this and woe to them for that. And these lousy people of yours that I'm a prophet to speak into their lives. And they're, they're so terrible. And then he got a vision of God. 
And he shrieks, woe to me, woe to me. In the presence of the holiness of God, he saw that, uh, that he was unclean. That God needed to do something in his life. There was no arrogance anymore. There was no, oh, I'm so good. You need to, I'll call you down for all your wrong. No, he, he now is in the presence of God and he cries out. See, the religious elite largely missed what God was looking for when he was looking for whom he would accept. He was looking for a humble and contrite heart. That all we can do at that point is cry out for mercy because we know we have no standing before him. It's his goodness and his righteousness. We can't even stand in his presence. If God is going to accept us, we need something from him. And that's his grace. God's favor, unmerited, unearned, undeserving. It's long bothered many religious people who are trying to merit God's favor. To do their best all through life, to be a good church member and serve and have Sunday school attendance pins and to give money and all of that stuff and to think that some terrible, awful person near the end of their life, their body is racked because of a sinful life, that they could call out for mercy to God and God would accept them. That's not fair. That's not right. It's the good guy. It's the person who's trying their best all the time to please God. But that's not how it works in God's economy. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Matthew, one of the disciples, one of the twelve, was a tax collector himself. Jesus called a tax collector to be one of his followers. And so he had a party, and there were many tax collectors and sinners that came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the religious people saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, we don't go near those people. Those people are disgusting. We would never have table fellowship with them. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I came for sick people. I didn't come for healthy people. The sad thing is, the tragedy is, that the religious leaders didn't see themselves as sick. They didn't see themselves as awful and terrible in God's presence. They thought they were doing pretty well and God should take note of them and God should be as proud of them as they are proud of themselves. But Jesus understood that we all needed a doctor. They just didn't get it. We're all sick. We're all sick with sin. We're all under God's condemnation, and we need something beyond us. And Jesus loved to hang around with sinners. That was actually the knock on him by the establishment. You hang out with the wrong people. You, you just, that's disgusting. You shouldn't hang out with these people. You shouldn't be around those people. In Luke 7 and verse 34, it said this, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, which Jesus never was. But he went where the people were. And here's what they called him. Here was the knock on Jesus. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
He cares about those people. He spends time with those filthy, disgusting people that we would have nothing to do with. And the understanding is our only hope and acceptance with God is not by what we do to get God on side because we've already messed up so bad, badly in all of our life that we could never bring God on side. His justice demands that for our sin we must die. But God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And when we come to him humbly, when we come to him recognizing that we can't do it ourselves, he opens his arms to us. He welcomes sinners and tax collectors. And he extends, he cried out for mercy. Mercy and grace are like, like two sides of a coin. Mercy means I don't get what I deserve. That is, I deserve punishment. I deserve hell. And I don't get what I deserve because God is merciful to those who acknowledge their sin and come to him. And grace is, I get what I don't deserve. And what I don't deserve is forgiveness and life and love and acceptance and being a part of God's family. And none of us deserves that. It's only by his mercy. It's only by his grace. And that's so encouraging because it means that for every one of us, there's the possibility of rescue. There's the possibility, there's hope for us, not because of anything that we've done, but everything that Jesus did. When Jesus said, I will take their punishment And he allowed himself to be hung on a cross, to be abused, and to die. And he died to take my punishment and your punishment so that God, who is a God who is holy, a God who who can't tolerate sin and rebellion and who must, by his justice, deal with it, poured his wrath out and put the punishment for us on his own son, that we could be forgiven and accepted with God. And it doesn't matter how far you've fallen, how bad you are, what's in your past, Jesus is willing to extend to you his mercy and his grace to forgive you and bring you into his family. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, he's flanked, by two murderous villains who were mocking him. I fear the Son of God. Come down off the cross. Save yourself. They're deriding him as he's hanging there. And the one guy, it comes to him like, this is crazy. We're getting what we deserve. But this guy, this guy doesn't deserve any of this. And he cried out from the cross, this murderous villain. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, today you'll be with me in paradise. Finding acceptance with God, how do we do that? It's not by being good, although God wants us to be good. That doesn't get us in. It's not our own pride. It's humbling ourselves and recognizing that we have a need that is so vast and so deep that only God could do something about it. 
And so we cry out. We can't even look up. We cry out, have mercy upon me, God. Have mercy. I don't deserve any of this. I need your help. Do you know he loves that? And he opens his arms and he reaches out. And he makes us his children when we put our faith in him. When we acknowledge our sin. When we say yes to him. And we invite him to be our savior. People who find this are people who know what it is to be hopeless and to be broken and not to be able to get out of that, not to be able to save themselves, and they humbly come to him. Probably the greatest missionary in the history of the Christian church was a guy who had been the most ardent uh, detractor the, the, the worst enemy that the church could have was a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus who was just, was just shooting ahead uh, in his career as a religionist. And um, he was there giving consent to the death of the first Christian martyr in the early church. God would get a hold of this guy. God would knock him on his keister when Jesus presented himself in all the, his incredible glory, blinded him. After this is after the resurrection. And Saul cried out, Lord, who are you? And, what, and, and he discovered that it was Jesus. And here's, here's what he would say about himself. This guy who went with Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 1. He said, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who's given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to this service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That's my story. I deserve death and judgment. But here's what he did. I don't know where you are spiritually, but I know this. You may be trying to bring God on side by working as feverishly as you can, that God would like you, that God would, would join you, God would put his, put his uh, stamp of approval on you. And I'm going to tell you, you're never going to get there. You will never get there because you can never atone for all the bad things you've done in the past. Well, I keep the Ten Commandments. You keep, you keep the Ten Commandments? Oh, that's wonderful. You know, like the no adultery, the no, yeah, well, yeah, no murder. No, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. How about the First Commandment? The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, over me, instead of me. You are so focused on living for me that everything in your life is done to please me, to honor me, that I'm number one in your life. Who of us could say that? We're done. We're done. But if we open our heart to Jesus Christ, there is hope for you. And you don't have to worry, did I do enough? Did I do enough? I'm doing as much as I can. Is it enough? You can't get there that way. You can only get by humbly receiving him. God detests 
the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And my prayer for you is that if you've been trying to get there by the things you do, you'll realize that's a dead end. It'll never happen. But if you open your heart to Jesus Christ and you confess that you need him and and you are so desperate for him, that he will forgive you. He will pay for your sins through Jesus and you can become a part of his family. And I want to say, yeah, after we close the service, if you need somebody to talk to or pray with, there'll be somebody up here. I know, you know what? We got a barbecue going on. But this is more important than a barbecue. And if you need to talk to somebody, somebody will be here and take a few moments and we'll save you a burger. Okay. Let's pray. Father, what Jesus says really goes against our instincts, what seems right to us. That a really bad person can get to you where sometimes a really good person will never get to you because they're trusting in their their own merit. And we can never get there with that. Thank you that Jesus Christ has made a way. Thank you that there's hope for all of us who are sinners, all of us who maybe have a past and things we're so ashamed of. And, 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 and Lord, we, we wonder how you could accept us, and yet you're willing to do that. In fact, you loved sinners. You hung out with sinners. You came to save, to seek and save lost people, sinners like us. And Father, if there's somebody here who's been trying to do it on their own and trying to get on your right side by doing more and more and more, I pray that you'll help them to see that they can never get there, that they can just cry out for mercy and that you will hear the sincerity of their heart and you'll welcome them. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as a church also to be a place Well, we don't look down our long noses at others that we figure we're more spiritual than they are. We're better than they are because none of us are better. We're all sinners saved by grace. And anything good that happens in our life happens because you are working in us. And may we be the kind of church that opens our, our doors and our arms to people like that tax collector who dared to go into a place of worship looking for relief from his life, his sin, and the degradation. Father, I pray that you would help us to be that kind of church also. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.